Do you have a favorite meat that you like to throw on the grill? Burgers, brats, steaks, chicken, pork, salmon, all of the above? Well, on this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, the group's going to pick up their conversation with author and speaker Margaret Feinberg about food in the Bible. And today they're going to focus on something the psalmist wrote about, that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Now that is a lot of beef, but discover with them how there is more behind that phrase than just a dream come true for those who love to grill. Our series Taste and See continues next on Discover the Word. And welcome to another hour of studying the Bible together on Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry. And from time to time, we invite friends to join us as well, and that is the case for this series called Taste and See. Now, Bill and Rasul both have this series off, but at the table with Mart and Elisa and Daniel is our friend Margaret Feinberg for these conversations about food in the Bible. Now, food is something that is part of our lives each day and is a common part of a lot of biblical texts as well. And so, as Margaret says, we're discovering God among butchers, bakers, and fresh food makers, and that food is, in many ways, God's love made edible. We are invited through our taste buds to become more attentive to God, that He is ready to be encountered in the aromatic and the savory and the tactile expressions of His love. Now, if you missed part one of this Taste and See study with Margaret, you can catch up on our discovertheword.org website or wherever you normally get your podcasts. That website and social media like Facebook and Instagram are great ways to connect with the group. All right, so Margaret and her husband love to grill. And if you love to grill, then the cattle on a thousand hills sounds like a real big cookout. But uh, Margaret's going to show us that as good as that sounds, there's an even better idea than that in that phrase. So when you all come to my house, one of the things that you will notice is in our backyard, we have not one, not two, but three different grills. Really? Ooh, nice. Grills? Oh, grills. tell me which kinds. I okay, love grills. So we have a wood pellet nice. grill. We mm-hmm. have a smoker. And then we have the traditional gas grill because my husband loves grilling. So what about you guys? Are you guys grillers, meat eaters? What's your favorite meat? You're going to have a source of protein that comes from animal. If you do, mm-hmm. what would that be? We love to grill. In fact, in the past few years, I've mentioned this a, a few times in conversations, my wife's Cuban. So at Christmas, they cook a pig over an open fire. Oh, and yes. so we've learned how to do that. So my kids and I do that throughout cool. the whole summer every wow. weekend. We cook something. And uh, so we love to grill out. Mm. I love to grill. And I love all kinds of meat. Just love it. And fish. Love to do sausages on a grill. Ooh. With the hamburger. Mm-hmm. With the chicken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I only got one grill. Now I, Me know. too. <laughs> <laughs> it's versatile, but I just got one. Yep. <laughs> You know, when I started to look at food in the Bible, there's a prevalence of meat. And so I decided to do something a little unusual. And I actually traveled to McKinney, Texas, where I studied under a butcher who calls himself the meat apostle. 
That's cute. And mm. even attended a Steakology 101 course and graduated with flying colors, which Whoa. just means I ate a lot of samples while I was there. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. But when I did, I started to have the texts that refer to particularly the animals and the meat that we eat in the Bible come alive in a whole new way. And one of the passages where I saw that was in Psalm 50, verse 10. Lisa, would you be willing to read that? Sure. And this is in a, a text that's talking about acceptable sacrifices, yes. right? And uh, maybe I'll start at nine. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. Did you guys hear this passage very much growing up? Or did you ever mm-hmm. hear it? Refer- what was the context you guys heard it referenced to? God owns the cattle on a thousand yeah. hills, so he can yeah. do anything. And so when we're being asked to give mm. generously, <laughs> we can feel free to give generously because God the implication in that situation is that he'll take care of you. He'll take or, care of you, right. Yeah. If you sacrifice your own mm-hmm. material goods. Mm-hmm. But it always felt so backwards to me because, well, why does God need my money then? <laughs> he's already he's got, got a cattle on a thousand hills. Exactly. It's, it's been abused. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think it's been abused. Yes. And I had heard it often in the same way. And yet as I spent time with the meat apostle, this began to open up in a slightly different way. Because I had always read it that this declaration was the idea that, you know, God had enough beef that he could fill up all of our freezers. But what I realized is in antiquity, that possessing cattle implied owning the land wherever the livestock roamed. And so that image of God owning the cattle on a thousand hills suggests that he doesn't just own the cattle, he owns the land too, and that his property extends in all directions. Is it something like the earth is the Lord's? Exactly. And everything mm-hmm. on it? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So we've taken it literally to the cattle when the point is the earth. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then when we look at that word cattle, I always read it and thought it was cows. And yet, if you look at the Hebrew term, it actually refers to the livestock. And so it was referring not just to the cows, but to the sheep and the goats. And in antiquity, just like today, the grazing habits of all these animals really complement each other. So as somebody who has livestock, the cattle will go first and they eat the tallest grass. And then you send out the sheep mm-hmm. and they eat the more medium grass. And then you send out the goats because we all know they eat everything that <laughs> nobody else wants to eat. <laughs> and so it's this idea that God doesn't just own the cows, he owns all of the livestock, all of the wild animals, and all of the land. And in antiquity, it wasn't just thinking about these animals as a steak or as a single meal, but their real value was in their life. Because if you kept these animals alive, then you got the milk, which was an ongoing protein source. You could make cheese. Then for the sheep, you got the wool. You could make clothes. And so this idea of God owning Every animal of the forest being his and the cattle on a thousand hills is just the incredible, powerful image of God as creator, as sustainer, as owner, that he has the best and the most abundant resources for all generations and it is ongoing. Mm -hmm. And I think that paints a little bit of a bigger picture in this text of not just the wealth of God, but his ability to provide and to sustain for you and me. And yet we live in a day when food is at jeopardy. What are we to make of that? Well, I think part of that is many will argue there actually is enough food. The issue is with the distribution of food. It is with the people keeping too much, using food to control others. Mm. That I think is also challenges us in this text is this idea of the scarcity mindset. Now what's that? 
A scarcity mindset is when we live in a place where we think that we do not have enough, that God does not have enough, that his arm is too short to extend to help, that he cannot provide in a situation. I think that there are times that this passage starts to challenge us and awake us to the reality of, no, 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 nothing is impossible for our God, that he can provide, he can sustain. And when we start to trust and believe in that God who does own the cattle, all the livestock, all the land and renewable resources that we can start to shift, I think, ourselves out of a scarcity mindset and begin to move to an abundance mindset. My daughter's favorite song that I sing to her sometimes when she's trying to go to sleep is a song from White Christmas where it says, when I'm worried and I can't sleep, I count my blessings instead of sheep. And the perspective that that offers in that song, it talks about when our bankroll is getting low or there's none at all. And how the perspective of what God has blessed us with changes our perspective so that we can rest. Kind of an intentionality of really looking at he's provided here and there Mm -hmm. and there. So I'm going to trust him in the future or in this moment. So what does a person do when trapped in scarcity? I think that is where we as people who trust in God begin to cry out and to pray and to ask God for him to reveal himself as provider, as sustainer, with the expectation that he will answer and probably not in the ways that we expect. Mm. I know that for me, one of the places that really, I've shared this on an earlier program, but that got me really trapped in the scarcity mindset is battling cancer. When that scarcity mindset, there's not enough time, there are not enough days of life, there are not enough days without severe pain. And in that scarcity mindset, what do you do? I felt absolutely trapped that there was no way out. And I remember in that time, I had this time when I was just praying and I sensed the Holy Spirit whisper and say to the essence, and let me just say the essence of the idea was you have a choice here to make that you can cling to the crisis or you can cling to Christ. If we become so focused on the scarcity, on the pain, on the difficulty, on the swirling darkness, We can live where Christ is maybe an accessory if we're lucky, but not the center. And making that transferable choice to say, in this, I will yield, I will lean into, I will cry out, I will trust Christ who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, even if I don't have one. You know, we kind of fool ourselves into thinking that we can provide anything for ourselves. I mean, we were created Mm -hmm. in relationship of dependency with our God because he desires the connectivity of us always longing and being with him. And he longs to be with us. But, you know, we can get up in the morning, you know, as James will say, and go into the, say, we're going to go into this village and do this and that. And we think we've got everything up in a row. But the reality is we can't breathe. We can't sleep. We can't have enough energy. We don't have enough money. We need food, which is our symbolic element right now we're talking Mm -hmm. about, in order to continue to exist. So it's everything in life. The scarcity is to really deny that we can be self-fulfilling. We can't. And I wonder if that's part of what the psalmist is driving at. A lot of Psalm 50 is about sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And Starting a little earlier than the section we read, Psalm 50, verse 7, it says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. In other words, the problem is not that you're disobeying me by not sacrificing. You're giving sacrifices. Mm -hmm. It almost seems like the Spirit 
behind this is they feel like they can provide for themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They can provide their own rescue. If I do these things, God will have to respond by giving me whatever. Which is backwards Mm -hmm. for the way we were created to be in relationship. And I think when we lean into that imagery of God owning the cattle on a thousand hills, that we remember that there is nothing that God has called us to that he will not provide. There is nothing that is coming that he cannot see beyond. That he is the creator, he is the sustainer, he is the provider, he is the owner of all, all, all. And he is in the business of renewing, of growing, of expanding, and bringing new life, no matter where we find ourselves. And that really does give us an expanded understanding of the cattle on a thousand hills, doesn't it? It's more than just beef and a huge grilling opportunity. The one who provides for us owns the land, and he owns it all. And we can trust him to provide out of the bottomless resources that he has. Well, you're listening to Discover the Word alongside Mark DeHaan, Lisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and our guest, Margaret Feinberg, as we get rolling in part two of our series titled Taste and See. And as we continue this conversation about food in the Bible, we're going to explore not a food per se, but a mineral that makes food taste better. I'm talking about salt. And so in this next segment, Margaret's going to share with us some fascinating things she learned when she descended 410 feet into a salt mine. There's more to salt than you might think. And so whether you can't get enough salt or you're trying to stick to a low-sodium diet, we all need to know what Jesus meant when he said, you are the salt of the earth. Growing up, I remember watching my mom salt everything (laughs) excessively. Yeah. And I thought that was so strange and so weird until I woke up one day and discovered I was doing the same thing. Hmm. <laughs> I love salt. I mean, I crave it. My husband actually made me check with the doctor to make sure it was okay, the amount of salt that I eat. And it turns out that with my genetic background, it's just fine. Wow. And so I add extra portions of salt. What about mm. you guys? I grew up thinking I shouldn't have salt, so I hardly ever did. And then I discovered it more recently, and yummo, it's good stuff. It makes a difference. It does make a difference. (laughs) I think my kids hated my cooking because I didn't know how to salt things. My grandma sounds a lot like your Mm. mom, Mm. Margaret, (laughs) because, wow, the amount of of salt that she would put on that, I mean, you would take a bite and all the moisture in your body would disappear. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Uh, I think we live in an age when salt is so common that most mm -hmm. of us, we don't even think about it. If one of us went to a restaurant and asked for salt to be brought to the table and the waiter said there will be an upcharge, I don't know about you, I would think, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that for most of human history, it hasn't been that way. That because of the difficulty and the great expense in technology and in transportation, salt at certain points of history is even traded for the same price as gold. Whoa. So in order to understand salt in antiquity, I actually went to a place in southern Utah where they harvest salt underground, which essentially means that it was an ancient seabed, and went down, drove into the mine. And what I saw was amazing because I expected to see this cave that we were driving in to be completely white. And instead, it had the most incredible hues of pink 
and of brown and of almost like a, a light red. And when we went down, we stopped in front of one of the large drills and got out of the truck. And I remember my host, Neil, he wiped his hand against the edge of the cave. And it was the most dazzling beauty of these pinks and almost looked like garnets and, and rose-colored diamonds. Like minerals and such. Yes. Huh. And that's when I discovered that salt, when it's naturally harvested, whether it comes from an ocean or a salt mine, it is always harvested with its surrounding minerals. And those colors were the iron and the magnesium and the other mm. elements. And I think that's really interesting for today's text, because in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And until I went down in the salt mine, I never realized that the salt that they were eating at the time of Christ was always harvested with its surrounding minerals, whether it came from the Mediterranean Sea as dehydrated, whether it came from the Dead Sea, or whether it came from one of the salt mines in Israel. So it wasn't being processed. It wasn't being processed. It was not the chemically altered white salt that's been fortified with iodine since 1924 that we eat today. So do you eat the minerals with the salt? Yes. What is that? Is that kind of crunchy? I'm just trying to imagine this. It adds a little bit different flavors. I know the salt oh. that I got in Utah, it almost had like a, it had this delightful light saltiness and then it ended with almost a sweet note at the very end. But what's interesting about that is I think that starts to shift the light when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. I think implies in the imagery that you and I, just like salt, are hewn with the natural surrounding minerals, that each of us come with our unique personalities, our unique backgrounds, our unique upbringings, strengths, our weaknesses, our quirks, and that Christ is wanting to use all of us as individuals uniquely designed and created and fashioned by God. Where do we find that? If we want to look up that verse, yeah. the phrase that we are the salt of the earth, where do we find that? Well, I think we find it here in Matthew 5.13, but I think it's also important to pay attention to the context to which the people who heard Jesus' teaching heard it. Because again, when they were listening to this teaching, I think one of the things that they realized was, first of all, the value of salt, but also that salt was a preserving agent, just mm -hmm. like it is today. That just as salt is placed between the layers of maybe fish or meat when you cut into it in the process of curing, that so too that we are preserving agents as followers of Christ as the mm -hmm. salt of the earth, mm -hmm. that perhaps we too have been embedded in this moment, in this culture, in this place, in this slice of history, that we would be preserving the ways and the teachings and the mm -hmm. life of Christ. I wonder too if when he used that, uh, he used that in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? He had yes. just talked about the series of blesseds mm -hmm. are, blessed mm -hmm. are the yeah. poor in spirit, those who recognize their mm -hmm. need. He went through that whole list. And I wonder if we could even look at the ground of this text, its surroundings, mm -hmm. as encompassing all of those elements of Jesus' teaching that he said, that, blessed are those who hunger and thirst mm -hmm. for right ways in behalf of others. If that doesn't contribute to the kind of salt that he's talking yeah. about here, right? If natural salt has all these other minerals and ingredients, if the kind of salt that he's talking about at this moment yeah doesn't bring together all of the colors mm -hmm. and the dimensions. It's almost like um, how we talk, Paul talks about in Galatians, the fruit of the spirit. Mm -hmm. And he has this list of nine qualities, right. which together express the character of Christ. And when he yeah. grows in us, we exhibit those. So maybe what you're suggesting is that the Beatitudes, being poor in spirit, 
being mourned, meek, etc. Those are the colors. They add to the kind of salt that we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And probably not just the Beatitudes, but also the the Sermon on the Mount is filled Mm -hmm. with you have heard, but I say, right? Where Jesus is taking what people have traditionally thought was what they were supposed to do and saying, no, there's even a bigger picture here. Right. And how much more rich that would be. Right. You but know? what I love about combining with the scene that the Beatitudes might mm-hmm. feed into this kind of salt and make it up mm-hmm. is it's good news. Yeah. And when you talk about the good news of the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. the Beatitudes are yeah. to be congratulated. Are you happy? Are you blessed when you see your need of God, when you mourn and grieve the wrongs that you say happening in yourself and around you? And I think that ties into a second element that I believe that people who listened today would have heard. They would have recognized mm-hmm. salt as a preserving agent. But I also think they would have recognized it how we recognize it today as a flavoring agent. Mm-hmm. And in essence, I, I think that what Jesus is saying is that as the salt of the earth, everywhere you go, you are meant to bring the taste of heaven down mm-hmm. here to earth. Mm-hmm. And as you engage, as you live out the Beatitudes, as you live out this countercultural almost upside down lifestyle of being blessed in these situations, you are the ones who are bringing the flavor Mm. of heaven here on earth. It's interesting too, to follow what we're saying about the context here. When Jesus ends that first list of the Beatitudes and says, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And you say, well, why persecuted for being right? Really, it seems to have in the biblical context, the idea, blessed are you, who are acting in behalf of others. There's a dimension of justice, or mm-hmm. a relationship between just treatment of people, standing up in behalf of others, advocates, pushing against the oppressor. And these are the people who bring salt to the world, mm-hmm. who are willing to stand up in behalf of the needs of others who are being victimized. Mm-hmm. And you see that because it's almost like a summary statement. Because yes. before that, it's blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful, right. those who are standing on behalf of others. And so as Margaret's leading us into verse 13, it's you're the salt of the earth. And then there's this kind of challenge, which yeah. goes back to what you guys are pointing out from the Beatitudes. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Right. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. If you really need to be who I made you to be. Just standing yeah. up on behalf of one another. Yes. Not just looking after our own interests. And I was curious about this. So I always thought, like, and I'd read commentators who had said that it is impossible for salt to lose its saltiness in the scientific perspective mm. of once sodium chloride, always sodium chloride. And so I asked my new salt miner friend about this. And he pointed out that some of those people who concluded that had never worked in a salt mine. And he explained that salt loses its saltiness through the dilution of other substances. Mm-hmm. And I think that challenges us to think as we enter into being this all, where are we being diluted? Where are we moving in maybe a direction where that is pulling us away from Mm -hmm. what Christ has intended Mm -hmm. and becoming diluted in our own lives? I know there are times I can become diluted by not taking time to spend with Christ, Mm -hmm. not practicing giving, not practicing serving, telling myself I don't have enough time for that. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon I wake up and I'm not that salty flavoring agent that I'm called to be. In the Greek there, the word is to become tainted so as to become useless. <laughs> and you're right. It's not that necessarily it loses its flavor as much as it takes on other flavors. Mm. Yeah. And if I become all about me, mm-hmm. if Christ is not making me into the kind of person who's here to help others yeah. with whatever he's given me, then I, there's no salt. 
may as well be trampled underfoot. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet I think in those moments, Christ looks at us and he says, that is not who you are called to be. You are the salt of the earth. And after that part of our conversation, you definitely have something new to think about as you shake some salt into a recipe or if your doctor says it's okay, onto your food. Well, you know, gluten-free, grain-free, and low-carb diets are a popular and sometimes necessary option for a lot of people these days. But for thousands of years, bread has been a staple on the dinner table. And in just a moment, Mart and Elisa and Daniel and Margaret Feinberg are going to explore what Jesus meant when he said, I am the bread of life in a conversation you had to know was coming. I mean, our parent ministry's name is Our Daily Bread Ministries. And so we'll explore how bread is another of the images in the Bible that helps us think about food as God's love made edible. We'll do that after a quick break to tell you about Margaret's book on this topic. Now, if you're enjoying these conversations we're having about food in the Bible, And I think you'll also enjoy reading Margaret's book, Taste and See. In the pages of her book, you're invited to join Margaret on a global culinary and spiritual adventure. You'll cast nets in the Sea of Galilee, descend 410 feet into a salt mine, bake fresh matzo at Yale University, harvest olives on the Croatian coast, and spend time with the meat apostle in Texas. Does that sound fun? And by the end, I think you'll have a whole new perspective and appreciation for food and a deeper understanding of its significance in Scripture. Margaret has such a winsome way of saying things, doesn't she? And she's confident that if you take up this culinary journey with her, that God will serve up some experiences for you as well. It's more than just some fun facts about food. You'll find a link to where you can get a copy of Margaret's book, Taste and See, when you visit our website at discovertheword.org. We have a link there this week. Or you can also search any of the online booksellers for Taste and See by Margaret Feinberg. And now, the part of our conversation about bread. In the Gospel of John, Jesus reveals himself as the bread of life. And so I'm curious, if Jesus (laughs) is the bread of life, what kind of bread is he to you? (laughs) Sourdough. Why? Because I just love sourdough bread. So it's the first <laughs> bread that comes to mind regardless. <laughs> I love that, Daniel. And that's my pick too. But I have to be more specific. Just the crust. Oh. Just the crust. I love the crust, the crunchy crust. Do you really? Yeah. Take the middle squishy part out. See, the trouble, I love sourdough too. But he has to be whole grain bread. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, he's the whole thing. He's the <laughs> <laughs> It's got to be all of him. <laughs> you could say rye because he was Jewish. I don't like rye. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> Do you like whole grain bread? Yes. Okay. I think for me, I would pick, because of my Jewish roots, mm-hmm. Feinberg, it's not super hidden there, challah yeah. bread. Who? That what? Challah How bread. How do you spell that? C-H-A-L-L-A-H. It's this beautiful, it's almost like an egg bread. It's braided on top and you oh, that glaze that. that's that just is good. toasted. That'll be my backup. Do you know I have asked that question so many times and they always pick a bread that we naturally love and enjoy. You didn't even, Marty, you didn't want to pick rye because you don't like it. And I think that's interesting when we start to think about Jesus revealing himself as the bread of life. I think when Jesus was making that statement, he was making so many statements. 
I think what he was saying was, I am your staple. Mm. I am your sustenance. I am your nourishment. I am the extraordinary in your ordinary. I am your past. I am your present. I Mm. am your future. Mm. Well, and I'm thinking about actually in John 6, when Jesus says this in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Mm. This is this allness that you're talking about. And that even kind of like what you suggested in the whole grain bread, Marty, that idea that in making this declaration, Jesus is in essence revealing himself as the seed, Mm -hmm. as the grain, as the sacrifice, as the offering, as the provision, not just, I think, the modern pre-cut loaf of bread that many of us envision when we think about bread. Mm. And this comes just after he fed the Mm 5,000. With bread. With bread. Mm -hmm. And And basket full were picked up afterwards. Mm -hmm. And then he reminds them of their history of how God provided for them. In the wilderness. In the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And then the big aha, the big reveal is him declaring himself as the bread of which if they eat, they will never be hungry. Right. And you know, there had to have been people that heard that just like you and I would, which is well, what kind of bread can you eat where you're never hungry again? You know, you have the same problem when he talks about being the water. And if you drink yeah. this water, you'll never thirst again. Mm-hmm. And isn't that what she asks him? Well, yes. where is this water? Right. Don't we ask the same question? Absolutely. I mean, even those of us who have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the mm-hmm. Son of God, when he says, you drink of me and you'll never thirst again, or you eat of me and you'll... You know, never be hungry again. Yeah. But we are and we do. Mm-hmm. We're still hungry we are and hungry. we are still thirsty. Yeah. And so it has to be beyond just the physical. It's almost like the physical is a picture of that spiritual need, which also in this life is not fully satisfied. Yeah. Right? All of us are still longing for having that fulfilled yeah. moment right. of being with Christ and with the Father. And so Jesus takes something so practical, so common, so every day. And in antiquity, we have to remember that the majority of the diet, only the wealthy could afford to eat meat other than maybe a small piece during the festivals. And so the daily diet in ancient Israel was bread, bread, and more bread. Mm -hmm. They perhaps might have had a little bit of a fish sauce or some sort of little fruit mash that they could have dipped the bread in in order to soften it. But that was the main diet. So it's that context to which Jesus Mm. reveals himself Mm -hmm. as the bread of life. And that context, they would have thought of themselves as the people of the Exodus, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you were talking about the season of being in the wilderness, the bread then was their daily sustenance, which was to remind them that God was with them, right? The Spirit of God was with them. Manna, yeah. Manna, yeah. So whether we're talking about the water, the everlasting water, or the food that is this ongoing provision, it must be that in the sense that once you have Jesus, you have one who is with you as our provider, Mm -hmm. as our sustainer. We'll never be without him. So in the sense of having a provider, we will never have to have another provider. We'll never have to have another source of sustenance. And in describing the manna, I love that in the book of Exodus, it described that it tasted like there was almost honey baked in. The book of Numbers describes it as having uh, the flavor of olive oil baked Mm -hmm. in. And I think about our God as the master baker, right? Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. one who even in his provision would bake in a sweetness that contrasted so much with the salty toil of the, the Israelites in Egypt mm-hmm. who would bake in olive oil, as we've already discussed in an earlier show, the healing. Our God is not just a provider, but such a good and loving mm-hmm. and thoughtful 
an amazing provider. He is the ultimate baker, the ultimate <laughs> chef. And that's one of the points that Jesus makes right before the verse that we read, because the people that are listening are very quick to point out, Moses gave us the bread. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says in John six thirty two, he said to them, very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Mm-hmm. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they responded, sir, give us this bread always. (laughs) Right, same idea. And so that somehow links back to what Moses said too, Mm -hmm. having come out of the wilderness, that we've learned that men and women do not live by what they made with their own hands, but by every word of provision that comes from the mouth of God. And I think part of that comes out in the imagery that bread provides. And I think why God used bread and maybe perhaps in part why Christ was revealed as bread, because I think one of the big images in both of those passages is this idea of transformation or metamorphosis, that we humans, by God, were never created with stomachs and teeth to process raw grain. The grains, in order to become edible and palatable, that they have to go through sprouting and fermenting and roasting or boiling and baking. And so baking bread, the very process, requires the grain to endure multiple metamorphosis. It has to be ground into flour. The flour has to be sprinkled with water, perhaps salt or yeast spores Mm -hmm. to become dough. The dough then must be heated to the proper temperature for just the right amount of time to create a desirable loaf. And so I think in this image, there is this transforming presence of a living God who is at work in us. Mm. This last year, I've gotten really into bread and, uh, and specifically into making sourdough. And if you have a sourdough starter that you feed, which I brought with me from North Carolina because I've been feeding this for almost a year now. And the sourdough bread process is a long process. You feed this starter every week or every day if you're an active baker. And then you go through a multi-day fermentation process to get the dough perfect before you actually bake it. And so it's the same way with Jesus in the way that the Holy Spirit impacts us. It's not instantaneous, right? We live in a culture of instantaneous bread. (laughs) But in reality, the real bread goes through a grinding process to make it into flour, goes through fermentation. It's this long Mm. transforming process that takes time. And in the end, you're left with this amazing loaf of bread. So you're saying that's a picture of how God feeds us then through process? Is that the idea? Yeah, it's not just this one-time event where it's finished, but it's this process of us becoming like Christ. And I was struck by the scriptures of, you know, unless a seed fall into the ground and die, it won't reproduce. And Jesus fell into the ground and died. I mean, he, as the bread of life, as it says in John 6, you know, he went through all of it that we might have the bread. And when he shows up in our life, it doesn't happen like you're saying, Daniel, immediately. I mean, it's the long process of Jesus Mm -hmm. having influence in us and through us as we slowly learn to open up our hearts to him. And I think that's such an incredible invitation for all of us that no matter where you are in your spiritual journey that Jesus is waiting arms wide open to come into your life to be the bread that satisfies to be the water that will leave you never thirsty that will be all that you need right where you are and perhaps if maybe you're listening and you've never considered giving your life to the person of Jesus Christ that what you give to him he will transform he will shape 
he will make you into something so stunning and beautiful because you are going to look like him. That journey is a long one, but it begins with a simple decision to say, I am no longer going to be the king and the Lord and the runner of my life. Mm -hmm. Jesus came as the savior of the world, that all who feast on him would have eternal life. And that's a decision you can make today. I'm curious, when you're at home and you're eating a meal with your family, mm-hmm. where do you eat? And I've also got a part B to this question because I also want to know, where do you eat in your home when guests come over? And is that a different place? Yeah, for us, we have a table that we inherited from Rebecca's parents. And uh, it's a glass table that's shaped like an octagon. And that's usually where we eat. And if the weather's not nice, that's where we eat with guests. If the weather's nice, then we'll go out on the porch and eat, uh, which is really nice. Yeah, interesting. You lived in the South, so. Yep. Yeah. Now that our kids are out of the house, mm-hmm. we eat about half of our meals in front of the television set mm-hmm. in easy chairs. Mm-hmm. And about half of the time we eat in the dining room around the table. Yeah. Yeah, we're big on the couch, too, Evan and I. Same thing, it's just the two of us. Mm -hmm. But when guests come over, I really like to be at one of our tables. We have just two, and they're not giant. One of them has the opportunity to put leaves in, and so that's my big one. And I just like for people to have a place to put their knives so it doesn't fall on the floor. Mm -hmm. It just seems like they're more comfortable. And I like to make it pretty, too. I like to kind of set a little candle lit and stuff. Well, I'm like Daniel in the sense of I love eating outside when the weather is good. I live in Utah and it's just amazing. But for most of the year, because we get so much snow, we actually eat in our living room. Mm -hmm. And Leif and I do that. And then when we have guests, we do as well. And we gather around kind of this little low setting table in the center of the living room. And people sit on the floor. Kind of like a coffee table? Yeah. Okay. And um, sit on the floor, sit around it. And if somebody has a medical concern, we'll definitely sit at the table. But otherwise, we love it when people come over and they just feel at home and a little Mm. bit disarmed. Mm. That sounds intentional. Yeah. So if you come over to our house, we're going to ask you to take off your shoes when you come in because there's a lot of mud. And then we usually set out a charcuterie, a tray of meats and And cheeses and crackers and nuts and dried fruits. We put it in the kitchen. Because we know the kitchen is the heartbeat of the home. Mm. And then we transition to eating in the living room. And just to create that space, Mm because we want to gather around tables where we expect Christ to show up. Mm. And I think that's a lot of what today's text is about. Hmm. And it's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And this is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. And just to give a little bit of background and context, in this passage, Jesus has just risen from the dead. And Cleopas and his friends are still struggling to wrap their heads around all that's happened regarding Jesus, his life, his death, this crazy rumors of resurrection. And Cleopas is a follower of Christ. We don't know much about him. This is like the only time we see him, isn't it? And mm-hmm. This is on the road to Emmaus where they're traveling and all of a sudden Jesus shows up, right? Yes, okay. out of the blue, like just yeah. pops up. And it sounds like they have some of the same questions you and I would have if we found out a friend rose from the dead. Uh, did that really happen? What's really going on? Yeah. I love how Jesus plays it super cool. Like he shows mm-hmm. up and he's like, so what are you all talking about? As if he didn't already know yeah. it was all about him and what was happening. <laughs> to him. And then the text describes it that beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus explains to them all that's in the scripture that describes him. And I love that word all because that mm-hmm. was not a five minute discussion. Yeah. But he must not have been identifying himself, right? He must have been talking about the Messiah. 
Yeah. Don't you know what's going to happen? You know. Well, they didn't recognize him. In fact, it's pretty clear that um, their eyes had not been opened yet right. to mm-hmm. recognize him. So, so he him. wasn't probably, as he walked along, opening the scriptures, saying, this is about me. Right. Yeah. And it describes that as they are approaching the village where they were going, Jesus continues on as if he's going to go further. And it says that they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. And so there's this sense that Jesus wants to come to their home and possibly gather around their table with them. And yet he's also waiting for the invitation. Hmm. Elisa, will you read verses 30 through 32? Okay, this is Luke 24. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Mm. There is so much in those few words, those opening words of verse 30. When he was at the table with them. Hmm. And how often do we gather around the table and not recognize that A, Christ is there, and B, just how much he wants to show up and reshape our conversations and open our eyes and our hearts. And yet, even as we care about one another, there's a sense in which Christ can be in there, right? Without naming him. Would it be customary for the guests to grab the bread and break it and bless it? Or is that a unique aspect to this story? Well, what I see in that is that he is repeating the gesture Mm -hmm. from the upper room. As he picks up the bread and breaks it, isn't it reminiscent of what he had just done and told them? And the feeding of the 5,000, I believe the same Mm -hmm. base four verbs of those actions are identical in all of those situations. That's an interesting point, yeah. So where he takes it and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it. Mm -hmm. It's a familiar. Yeah, so it's a rhythm that Jesus has done before, Mm -hmm. which is obviously why... They respond because it's in that moment that their eyes are opened. Say that again. What are the four? So Jesus took it and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it okay. to them. And it's in that moment that they recognize him. Mm. And then they say, weren't our hearts burning within us? Why have we been so slow to believe this? Here he was the whole time. Do you think they saw his hands for the first time or what do you think mm. happened? I don't know. I think there's some mystery in this. You know, what was it? Was it the breaking of the bread? Was it them seeing his hands and seeing the the holes, the scars? It's possible, isn't it? Yeah. I think in this passage, it reminds me, I think for myself and maybe some of you guys, you know, I live my life on the road and the coming and the going and the errands and the chores and the carpooling and the responsibilities. And I think this passage challenges me to remember that Jesus is in the midst of our everyday lives. But like these two men on the road to Emmaus, I don't know about you, I don't always recognize him. Mm -hmm. And yet there's something that happens when we gather around a table and invite Christ in that place. If somebody says, how do we get from there to here, though, to our table? Yeah. Well, I think of the wonderful plaque that's above so many dining rooms that says Jesus is the unseen guest at every table. (laughs) You know, even here at Discover the Word, we have an empty chair often in the studio to represent Christ's presence, but also another listener who might be the fourth chair or fifth chair pulling up themselves to the table. But I think we have this kind of uh, colloquialism for him Mm -hmm. that he's at our tables no matter what. We don't really live that way, though. We may make a sign and put it up, but I don't know that I think about that much at all. And yet if we ask one another, well, what do we really believe about him? Yeah. And do we believe that he is with us in spirit, having said, I will never leave you 
or forsake. It has yeah. to be him in spirit, right? Absolutely. And the person of his Holy Spirit is with us in this room right now. And this journey of studying food in the Bible, it's made the scripture come alive in a whole new way. I read it differently, but it's also, I know for me personally, changed the way I approach the table. People will often ask if they're coming over to dinner, what can I bring? Mm. And if these people are people of faith and live in a relationship with a wonderful, amazing person of Jesus Christ, I will say, I don't need you to bring a salad, but I would ask that you bring your prayers and your expectancy that God is going to show up in our time together. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I have started praying. I used to think about people coming over for dinner, and my mind was only about preparing the food or going by the grocery store or ordering it in or whatever it might be. And now I pray for the night. I pray for the people before they come. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing that I do is that somewhere during the night I ask the simplest question, and I'll phrase it according to who is in the room, but it will sound something like this, based on the person's faith journey. Where have you seen the Holy Spirit or God or the divine or the higher being? Mm -hmm. Where have you seen that at work in your life recently? Mm -hmm. And I stand in awe to tell you how many nights that simple question Mm -hmm. has unlocked the deeper heart longings and aches and pains and joys of people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of the answer to this question of how do we encounter Christ more on the table is by being more intentional Mm -hmm. through prayer, by asking questions that are gentle and yet unlocking, Mm -hmm. by raising the level of expectation and the focus of friends before they ever arrive. Maybe just remembering that he's actually there. Yeah, that's what you I was know, just too. like what you're saying, Daniel. I appreciate yeah. your honesty. Don't think about it that much. But if we stop yeah. and realize, and Mark, you said this yeah. too, our daily dependence—he's always there. And maybe it's just pausing and putting a chair there to mm. acknowledge that we get it. And I get the sense in this story, Jesus could have revealed himself at any moment that he wanted to, mm-hmm. and they would have gotten it. But he waited until they got to the table. Mm-hmm. There is this intentionality by Jesus to use this bread to once again remind them of what he had done on the cross. And then he disappears immediately. The text literally says, he, right then, he vanished. <laughs> Which is super frustrating. Which is frustrating, because all the questions they had after yeah, that. <laughs> but the reality is that he does open our eyes to see, and then it's our responsibility to remember mm-hmm. what we've seen. And to recognize that when we gather around the table just like they did, that our hearts too can burn within us with the excitement and the joy and the reality of Christ with us. What a great idea to leave an empty chair at the dinner table, wherever that may be, to remind yourself of God's presence. Uh, Much like we do here at Discover the Word, to remind ourselves that uh, you are here with us. But when we're having a meal, that reminder that Jesus is present with us, well, that can change those everyday times for the better. Well, in many Christian homes, it's a tradition to say grace before every meal, to thank God for the provision of food and recognize our dependence on him for everything, including our daily bread, our daily food. Well, in the conclusion of this episode of the podcast, they're going to explore why meals are a natural time to reflect on God's blessings and thank him for his faithfulness. And we'll do that after this reminder. As we come down to the end of this edition of the Discover the Word podcast, I want to take a moment to tell you about our involvement with an exciting project from our Daily Bread Ministries called The Holy Land Season 4. 
And right now we're raising funds to send our friend and Bible geography expert, Dr. Jack Beck, to Israel, along with our film crew, to create 10 brand new episodes of our popular video series, Exploring the Holy Land. Now, Jack was here with us on Discover the Word a few weeks ago, kind of previewing where this season four journey would take us. But uh, Jack, this isn't just another online video travelogue, is it? There are just so many video tours of Israel online. Uh, You can find them everywhere. But I want you to know that this is not just a video tour of Israel. It's designed to be a Bible study aid. Stories have places, just like people do. Stories have places. Bible stories have places. And we miss something if we miss the place. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating and hopefully faith-building trip. But we need your help. As you can imagine, it's expensive to travel with a crew to capture the high-quality video footage that characterizes a production like this. And so right now, when you give to Discover the Word, 100% of your donation will go towards production costs for the Holy Land Season 4. Help Jack and help us when you give online at discovertheword.org. Click Donate, and you can give right there at discovertheword.org. And now let's wrap up this study about the references to food in the Bible and the invitation to taste and see. So, Margaret, I knew food was mentioned in the Bible, but I was pretty skeptical when we started all these conversations (laughs) that it would be able to fill this many programs. You have led us through a lot. The table is full. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, thank you so much for coming and helping us see some of this in Scripture. It's been really memorable. I love any time we can get into the tangibility. You know, God really gets Mm -hmm. it that we need things, that we need physical expressions to understand our need for him. And food and scripture is one of those. Yeah, and it's so great to see something that can be thought of as being so small Mm -hmm. and such a practical part of our life, a necessary part of our life. And yet, Margaret, you've lifted it to some very high and overarching Mm -hmm. thoughts about God. And I think we've barely scratched the surface. I mean, again, you start to look for food in the Bible, it pops and sizzles on almost every page. Mm -hmm. I mean, back to that Genesis creation story. Mm. God not just creating a world, but creating a garden, literally where food is growing, that that would be the place that Adam and Eve would spend time with him in the cool of the day. And as we've talked about, even after that act of eating forbidden fruit, God keeps using food and food Mm -hmm. imagery to reveal himself and his character, revealing himself as creator, as sustainer, Mm -hmm. as provider, revealing his presence and his provision. It still takes my breath away. And we never stop needing to eat. I love the ongoingness of it because, I mean, Mm -hmm. again, it's so memorable. I'm hungry every 10 minutes, you know, (laughs) if I can understand my physical and how that relates to my spiritual need. Yeah. Yeah, It points beyond itself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I've been uh, reading 1 John recently and the way 1 John starts, it says that, you know, we declare to you what we have seen and heard and touched with our hands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought, you know, the gospel so often is very intangible. Mm-hmm. It's like something you have to agree with in your head is how it feels. Mm-hmm. But I think what we've seen over these conversations is that the gospel is also tangible, mm-hmm. that God shows up in the things that we touch and we smell and we eat. 
to show us his presence and his provision in our lives. I love the way the psalmist in Psalm 34, 8 invites us, taste and see Mm -hmm. that the Lord is good. Yeah, why would he say it that way? I mean, I understand what we think, but, you know, what do you think was going on? You know, in that particular passage, kind of like the sensory that you were alluding to in First John, it's the same here. You know, we are invited through our taste buds to become more attentive to God, that he is ready to be encountered in the aromatic and the savory and the tactile expressions of his love, that we do not serve a God who is far off, but one who is present and wants to, I think, show up and show off in the midst of our everyday life. Mm -hmm. And how good of a God is that? How Mm -hmm. good and personal and intimate in one of the lessons about the manna that was provided by the Israelites. And that was just such a, a great conversation. But I think about God providing that manna. And I think about my Jewish grandmother who used to make Um, matzo ball soup. And there is that sense that when she would make matzo ball soup, it was part of her. It was part of who she was. And when I was sick, it would be that bowl of matzo ball soup that I would sip and I would drink and I would nosh on those matzo balls. And in the same way, God, through the manna, through the Israelites, all of that manna that they, in coming out of slavery, in their pain, in their woundedness, that God would provide for them. And if God does that so much for them, how how much he does that for you and me? Mm -hmm. I'm struck by the fact that the psalmist tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good Mm -hmm. and that God, the Lord, became a man who could taste and see and who would hold up bread and invite others to eat with him. I'm really struck by the multi-layered that we're supposed to believe God's good by tasting and seeing, but Jesus himself tasted and saw. That's just mind-boggling. And even the ability to taste. Mm Mm-hmm. And to see is a mm-hmm. gift, mm-hmm. right? That's right, because not everybody has that. No. Not everybody has the ability to enjoy in the way that we're describing. Right. And yet God meets them too in very creative and unique yeah. and tangible ways mm-hmm. as well. Whatever senses are given, mm-hmm. whatever ability to think and to process and mm-hmm. to experience the spirituality mm-hmm. that is inherent in our existence, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it points to him. I'm curious, what has stood out to you most One of my favorite ones were the couple of conversations we had on olives Mm -hmm. and olive oil and the healing power of it and the role of oil in scripture, that there is a healing understanding and an embrace of God's ability to heal us when we think about oil and when it's paired with Mm -hmm. prayer. We're reminded so often today that olive oil is good for our diet. Uh It just has all kinds of healthy properties. Mm But then to be able to look at it and say, and yes, given to us by God and used by him, pointing back to him so mm-hmm. that, you know, that he's there for our spirit, the health of our spirit as well as for the health of our bodies. And Jesus really providing that for us, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, that place where olives are pressed into oil in the last night of his life, praying this prayer of take this cup and yet not my will. He himself being crushed to give us access to mm-hmm. true, complete Healing. healing. Yeah. I think sometimes it can be awkward to figure out how do I bring up, just even start a spiritual conversation around the table mm. with family or friends. And suddenly you start looking at these foods <laughs> and you're like, oh, as I pass the bread that's dipped in the olive oil with the spices, you know, I learned something about olive oil this week that was kind of <laughs> interesting. And it just, it becomes so much more accessible. Mm. I think that's what has struck me is just the tangibleness with which we can see and experience the love of the Father through the sacrifice of the Son, through food. So that when we grab a bottle of olive oil or a loaf of bread, 
that that can point us to him in the same way that his scriptures point us to him or our relationships point us to him. This is just another layer to the many ways in which God reveals himself through what has been made. Hmm. I still remember the, uh, the salt and what it does when we understand that when Christ teaches us how to become salt, it's so rich. It flavors life, it preserves life, yeah. it changes life. And it's not just this one-dimensional thing. It really is an right. expression of the whole relationship we have with him. Yes. Yeah. And the relationship we have with others. And that's been another theme throughout this. It's not just... The community. Yeah, it's not mm-hmm. just us enjoying food, although sometimes God meets us there too. Mm-hmm. But it's meeting with others and celebrating all that God's provided as a community. In fact, most of the memories that we described were memories related to people Mm -hmm. that were with us at the table. Mm -hmm. And sometimes food is an important part of that. And sometimes it's just the fact that we're together. And I think, Margaret, you started out the series of conversations in the garden. And that struck me. I hadn't thought about Mm -hmm. that. And then when you brought all the way to the end to Revelation, and showing again Jesus knocking at the door and wanting to be invited in to share a meal around the table, which encompasses all that he is and all that we need. I think all of this causes, I hope, stirs us to come around tables just like this one with that expectation. But I also think it invites us to come with greater thankfulness and gratitude. Mm -hmm. Daniel, would you be willing to read Psalm 118, verse 1? Sure. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. You know, for me, one of the ways that this has really challenged me is just my husband and I, we will say grace. We will give a prayer before we eat. But often it's the same rote prayer. Maybe a few little creative expressions, but it's kind of the same. And in the process of looking at food in the Bible, it's caused us to stop. And as we pray, give thanks to God as creator, as sustainer, as provider, but then to thank God for all the people who have been involved. For instance, God, thank you for the person who planted the seed, the one who drove the Mm -hmm. truck, the one who packaged, the one who stocked the shelves, the one who checked me out, and trying to expand, I know in our own lives, our capacity for thankfulness Mm -hmm. at every juncture that we possibly can. And even the way scripture uses prayer and food, the blessing of the food, there's the connection there, isn't there? So it's given a special role in mm-hmm. reminding us mm-hmm. of our provider, of our Father. Yeah, It's interesting because in Jewish culture, there are unique prayers depending on what food that you are eating. Mm. And so that gratitude is just, it's embedded in the acknowledgement of God. And I think when we gather around tables and we are able to find ways to acknowledge God more than as we described, you know, in the conversation on Luke 24, that all of a sudden, we are around the table, our eyes are open, our hearts burn within us. Yeah. yeah. And maybe that's the invitation for us as we try to figure out, okay, we've learned <laughs> a lot about food in the Bible. Where do we go from here? It's almost, as we were just talking about with prayer, it's just this deep awareness of the fact that Christ is present with us at the meal. That when we're praying, it's that God has been the one to provide the food for us. And so in our very fast-paced culture, where we get food on the run often and we shouldn't, but we often eat in our car and are distracted. <laughs> and uh, don't miss the obvious, right? Yeah. <laughs> don't yeah. miss the obvious. Yeah. Yeah. We have an unending need for him. Mm-hmm. Food drives us to him and he has an unending provision for our need. And each and every day, all of us can wake up and taste and see God's goodness in new measure. Yeah, and that 
was our friend and author Margaret Feinberg concluding our two-part study called Taste and See. And we so appreciate what Margaret has brought to the table during these conversations about the purpose and meaning behind the foods that we find mentioned in the Bible. She was joined by three of your Discover the Word group members and Bible study partners on this culinary journey, Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, and Daniel Ryan Day. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Well, in our next podcast, Bill Crowder will be back at the table with Elisa and Daniel to lead a series of conversations that explores the deep water experiences that touch each of our lives and the role repentance often plays in them. Now, Bill will be taking us to a psalm that he calls a song of hopeful repentance, in which he points us to one of the main keys for understanding both the Bible and life. Don't miss our next Discover the Word podcast, a song of hopeful repentance. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedding. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.